Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt Eye Connections in New York taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about Eye Connections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. It is Monday, June 6th. Welcome to a bonus episode of On the Tape. Today, Dan and I sat down with Wilfred Frost, six foot six, British stud, soon to be the next James Bond, for an in depth interview conversation. I love the guy. I know Dan does as well. By the way, side note Dan and his wife actually went out to his wedding a week and a half or so ago. Dan, how are you? I'm doing well, Guy Dami. This is kind of weird for us potting on a Monday without Danny Moses. We miss Danny. Danny will be back with us. We have a very special episode. We're sitting down with Herb Greenberg later on the week. Yep, you, me, and Danny. That'll drop Friday morning, so check that out. All right, let's let's just kind of get into it, Guy. We got 10 minutes. Let's put 10 minutes on the clock, okay, before we get to the Wilford interview here. What's catching my eye? It's shortly after the opening on Monday. I see Amazon. Is a hundred and twenty eight dollar stock guy. Last week, it was a two thousand dollar stock, but today it's up nearly five percent. So a twenty for one split causes retail investors. Is it retail investors just surging into the name here? What's your take on that? That seems to be. We discussed it on Fast Money on Friday. We've talked about it for a while. Listen, you know, I said on Fast Money that I'm one of those get off my lawn old dudes in terms of stock splits, but I've come to learn that regardless of the math associated with it. Something does happen when these stocks split. Maybe it's just as simple as that. Retail investors get in, or maybe options can now be traded more actively. I'm not sure, but it clearly works. We'll see. With all that said, though, Dan, I know you know this as well. Amazon basically has been a tough stock to own in terms of price appreciation for the last couple of years. In a market that until recently has done nothing but gone up, Amazon has actually gone uh, slightly lower. So that's been interesting to watch. We'll see how it mends itself here. I'll say this, with Amazon, it's all about margins. And the last couple of quarters, the margins have been decreasing. No good. Yeah. Well, I'll just say this, that the, you know, the stock gapped on their earnings, their Q1 earnings, down to about $130. And it's approaching there right now. So there is sizable technical resistance. There's a little bit of a gap between 130 and 135. It'll be interesting to see if it tests that, get through that. The other thing is, you know, Google right out of the gate today, guys, up 3.5%. That's a $2,300 stock. They're also going to have a big split later on in the summer. We know that Tesla also announced a split. We don't know when that's going to come. So all of that is out there. Here's one thing that you must be super excited for today. What's that? It is Apple's WWDC. That stands for Worldwide Developers Conference. They're going to announce all of these new applications and all this new stuff that you're going to be able to rush out to your application store and buy, guy, on your phone. I can't tell you. You know, there's certain days that just resonate with me. Like, for example, New Year's Eve is obviously a big one for everybody. Christmas Eve, Thanksgiving, Halloween has always been a big one with me. Stanley Cup Final Game 7, if the Rangers were to play the Colorado Avalanche, that obviously would be a big day. But right up there along with it is these Apple developers days. I get so geeked up. I wear my Apple underwear, my Apple socks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so much fun. I mean, all these people that wait online for the Apple store. I mean, it's it's really heartwarming to me how people bow at the altar of Apple. By the way, a company 
that I know everybody says has been the best thing to happen to mankind. I would submit it's the worst thing that happened to mankind. That's a hot take. All right, fair enough. You know, guy, you do see the 50-day moving average move below, below the 200-day moving average. What do some of the technicians call that? A death cross? What does that mean? We call that a death cross. You know, every time we bring up these death crosses or golden crosses, it typically is the counter indicator of all time. So. I saw that over the weekend. People were talking about the death cross in Apple, and I said, I guarantee the stock is higher on Monday, and here we are. With all that said, though, there are a lot of people thinking that Apple could trade down at 125 or thereabouts. I've heard a chorus of that number now, and I'll say this. If Apple were to get to 125, that thought at 37.50 level in the S&P 500 that we've talked about for a while absolutely comes into play. Yeah, no, it's also interesting that, you know, we were talking about for months now that earnings estimates have to come down. We have the strength of the dollar. We have weakening demand in Europe. We have some issues as it relates to China and lockdown, supply chains. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And estimates really hadn't come down. Last week, Microsoft, they guided down for the current quarter because of the dollar headwinds, the strength of the dollar. We know the dollars come in a little bit. Same thing for Apple here. I mean, Apple has that same exposure. You know, they have a third of their sales or or more come from outside North America. And you look at this thing, though, the only thing I'll say, guys, about valuation with Apple, when it was trading about 28 times in estimates for earnings up 8% this year and high single digits for next, it seemed kind of expensive. It's come in a little bit now. In current year, it's about 24 times, a little less than 23 times next. And estimates are still, you know, for EPS growth, high single digits, sales growth, let's say mid to high single digits. Maybe those come down a little bit. But my point is, is the stock doesn't stick out like a sore thumb anymore. Microsoft trading at 28 times last week certainly did. The existential risk to Apple, and we had a really interesting conversation last week on Monday with a pretty high profile CEO. But I'll say this, the existential risk, I believe, still continues to be China, Taiwan, and if there's any dust up there and what it forces Apple to do, if anything. And I would submit either outcome for Apple would be bad. China, Taiwan, if they're forced then to do something in China, obviously that's bad. And if something does happen between China and Taiwan and Apple does nothing, I think that's equally bad. So I think they find themselves in a very awkward position here as we move forward to the back half of 2022. Yeah, I, I agree. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, the precedent that's been set by U.S. multinationals pulling out of Russia. And we know that, you know, Russia for most of these companies is maybe 1% of their sales, maybe, you know, you know, low single digits at best, right? So it'll be interesting to see these companies that not only rely on China for manufacturing, for supply chain, but also demand, uh, you know, and demand. So that'll be interesting to see. Let's talk really quickly, Guy, about this Twitter Elon Musk thing. This morning, he comes out, he made a filing. He's basically saying the company obstructed on access to information as it relates to fake accounts, bots, that sort of thing. You know, I think it's important to note that when he had the agreement with the company to pay 5420, which is about $44 billion, he kind of waived a lot of his rights to do due diligence. He had plenty of time to do due diligence before that. So is he negotiating a lower price? Is he basically threatening in a very Trumpy way, you know what I mean, had a deal that just kind of jawbone on Twitter and now basically forcing them to sue him to kind of meet his obligations. Not a great setup, not a great look, I would say, for a guy who's the CEO of a company that has a $700 billion market cap, which is Tesla. It seems to be a a bit of a sideshow and it doesn't seem like it's going to end anytime soon. Listen, you were way ahead of this when it was announced and we talked about it on Fast Money that night. I thought the stock would actually get to that 54 level, if not higher. And I thought the deal would get done at those levels. Clearly, I was fooled by him. I think a lot of people were. But what is this? I'm not really sure what his end game is, because if you look at it, if you look at the price of Tesla since this whole thing started, I mean, Tesla's probably down. You can do the math better than I can. I bet you it's down somewhere between 35 and 40 percent since he announced this whole Twitter thing, which is obviously not great. We'll see. I don't know what the end game is here. I don't know if he ever really was interested in it or it was just some political rankering thing. I have no clue. But there are many chapters left, and one has to wonder if there are going to be legal ramifications against him, given all the jawboning he did do into this entire thing. So it's going to be fascinating to watch. This story is far from over. Well, you know, a guy in, in a sort of meta fashion, I tweeted earlier that the discovery in the Twitter Inc. versus Elon uh, Musk will be very revealing, okay, if you if you will. And I think there's probably some security laws that were broken in his disclosures and all that sort of stuff. So we'll see what happens here. All right, you brought this one up, and this is kind of interesting. Chinese stocks are ripping the Chinese. I guess there's a report out that they're going to conclude some of their anti-competitive, and th- there was a bunch of investigations that the government had into many of their tech 
giants over the last year, year and a half. Companies like Didi were maybe being forced to kind of delist from here in the U.S. That stock is up 50% today. Alibaba's up 9%. Baidu's up 3%. Quick take here, because I know this is something that you've followed. You know, President Xi has caught a lot of heat for his zero COVID policy. There's been rumblings. Who knows? I'm not a political scientist or anything like that. But but she's support in the Communist Party has been waning. There's a big Congress coming up this fall, and maybe it makes sense for him to do a whole host of things that kind of help shore up some of his support there. So I'm just curious, does this fit into that? And do you think these stocks guy are investable? And I said to you, and I probably said it on Fast Money on the Pod, for every great story in China about, you know, finding this emerging middle class or unlocking some AI tech as it relates to commerce or this and that or whatever, there's equally good stories in other places around the world where you don't have the risk, right, of the government coming in and cracking down and really just demolishing equity value the way that they have over the last year or two. The question you asked, are they investable? My answer would be no. Are they tradable? Absolutely. And you talk about Alibaba, which made an all-time high. I think it was Halloween, if I'm not mistaken, of what, 2020 or thereabouts? I I think that's right. Or maybe, no, maybe it was 2019. It doesn't matter. Traded north of $300 a share. It's had a series of lower lows and lower highs ever since. But the bounces we've seen off these lows have been tremendous. We've seen bounces of anywhere from 30 to 50%. We're probably in the midst of one now. But Alibaba, for example, could probably trade up to 115, 120 and still be in this downtrend. So to answer the question, investable, I say no. Tradable, I say yes. And I still think there's some upside here. In terms of, though, the things you said about President Xi in China, I'll say this. If things start to open up there again, and this gets us into more of a commodities conversation quickly, and I've said this for a while, the headwind that that created, the zero COVID policy in China created for crude oil has now abated, and I think crude continues to go higher from here. That, to me, is the real story, Dan. Yeah, well, let's hit the macro for a second here, Guy. Real quickly, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield is trading right back at 3%. Its high last month was 3.2%. That was a multi-year high. If you remember 2018, the 10-year topped out at 3.25, and the Fed obviously pivoted there. Stock market went down 20%. I do think this is all interesting, that the S&P 500 a couple weeks ago bottomed out, Guy, or at least you know intermediate-term bottom, it was down 20% from its highs in January. And just think about what a different world we live in now than the last time that the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield was at 3%. Think about where the Fed balance sheet is. Think about you know what, what's happened to supply chains, a shooting war in Europe, large parts of China being locked down here. You know, To me, it just seems like a different world, that financial world that we live in. And it just doesn't make any sense that the S&P 500 could be done going down you know, when it touched 20% after everything we know about what it's going to take to climb out of this hole from here on out, especially given where inflation is. Rising rates are not rising because economies are getting better. They're rising for the wrong reasons. I've said that a lot of times, and hopefully people understand that. I think they're coming to that realization. Inflation's a problem. I mean, look at the German numbers the last week and a half. They've been off the charts. And inflation is not only a problem in this country, it's now become a problem globally. And central banks have been forced to raise rates, basically trying to be responsible for the first time in over a decade and a half. And we'll see how that plays out. But to your point, you're talking about global debt to GDP probably approaching 115 or so percent. It's a ridiculous number that's unsustainable. And rising rates obviously do nothing to help that. A Fed balance sheet that's still either side of $9 trillion that they're going to try to reduce into this is going to be problematic at best. So I don't know how the broader market rallies. Obviously, we're seeing a rally now. I don't know what that's predicated on, but we'll see. I think it'll be short-lived. All right. Well, let's talk about that really quickly before we get out of here, Guy. You were calling for 3750 You've been calling for 3750 since the S&P was 4600 That was one heck of a call. I think the intraday low on May 20th was 3810 Here we are. We've had this bounce from there. We're at 4165 You look at the lows that we saw in January, in February, in March, in April, okay, we have this kind of cluster between 4,200 either side. Let's call it 50 points in the S&P 500. Well, here we are, guy. It looks like we're threatening it, you know. If we get through 
I mean, maybe 4,400, you know, you know what I'm saying? And if we get there, we're still kind of in a bit of a downtrend from those January highs in the S&P 500. And I think you and I would both agree that if we were to rally into the end of this quarter and then we're going to start to get, you know, Q2 earnings and, and guidance for Q3, that sets up as, I think, a great opportunity for traders to short or some investors who are of the belief that it's going to take us a long time in this rate hiking cycle in this QT environment where we know that inflation is going to remain, as you would call, pesky and persistent. You know, it's just S&P earnings are not going to be that high single digits growth. And therefore, if we were to overshoot to 4,300 or maybe 4,400, that's where you kind of lay into it on the short side. Yeah, I'd, I'm, I'd be shocked if we got there, but I've been shocked many times before over the years with this market. So I'll just put that out there, number one. Number two, you mentioned it. You think Microsoft is going to be the last of these huge companies to have an earnings revision? Absolutely not. It's the first, not the last. And by the way, you were saying that for months leading up to it, that you were expecting something like that and you got it. And quite frankly, I don't think it's the last one. And for Microsoft, they mentioned dollar being the headwind, currency headwinds. Well, what if it becomes a demand headwind? What if demand starts to wane? What happens then to these companies? And you know, I think, again, that's the first, won't be the last. And multiples need to come down, but the earnings part needs to come down as well. Well, you know, on the demand front guy, we had that jobs report. There were a lot of people explaining away on Friday, the May report. It was kind of a Goldilocks sort of thing. I don't know about you, but everywhere I look and, and Tesla, Elon Musk sent an email out to, to his workforce um, late last week that, you know, they're going to do 10% headcount reduction of salaried workers. He sees some really unhealthy things going on in the economy. That could be the tip of the iceberg. And so the one thing Thing that we haven't mentioned yet is that if unemployment starts to tick up off of pre-pandemic levels, which were 40-year lows, that's when you see demand start falling off a cliff. And I think that's what Walmart, that's what Target, and that's what Amazon had to say to us about consumer demand. And as you make the point all the time, two-thirds of our GDP or more is consumer-led here. And we could be on the cusp of that, especially when mortgage rates have just gone where they've done and interest rates in general are this high and inflation is is eating into the consumer at a time where the savings rate's down and consumer credit's going up. 45 seconds ago, you mentioned Goldilocks. And speaking of Goldilocks, when we come back, the golden locked six foot six, dashingly good looking, equally intelligent, Wilford Frost will join us on the tape. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Wilfred Frost served as the co-anchor of CNBC's Closing Bell and covered banking and finance for the network's business day programming. He joined CNBC in 2014 as the co-anchor of Worldwide Exchange. Wilfred Frost is a contributor for CNBC, joining from London to report on special coverage. He also serves as a contributor to NBC News and CNBC's sister network, Sky News. Frost assumed his current role after stepping back from his anchor duties at CNBC in February of 2022. Wilfred also manages a TV production company called Paradigm Productions, which is about to release its second season of its hit podcast series, The Frost Tapes. Wilfred, welcome to On the Tape. So folks, as Dan will tell you, I've been with CNBC for the last 53 years, but the reality is it's not true. I've been with the network for about 17 or so years, and I've had the good fortune to meet some incredible people along the way. Now, being half Italian, half Sicilian, my mantra is people are guilty until proven innocent. That's just the way I roll. So when I heard Wilfred Frost was coming to the network sometime in 2014, I was immediately predisposed not to like him. British dude, (laughs) tall, extraordinarily good looking, bright as hell, from royalty, the whole thing. But then I met him for the first time. And I say with complete honesty, one of the nicest, smartest, kindest, generous people I've had the opportunity to meet, and it's with great pleasure, Wilf. We welcome you to On the Tape. Dude, that's you, you, you shouldn't go out of character like that. It doesn't sound right. No. Thank you very much for the uh, the generous welcome. It's, it's good to be here. 
It's absolutely true. I, I think you know that. I think you know the way I feel about you. And the way you put your head down with no ego whatsoever, came to the network, did that show that's before the crack of dawn and did it for a long period of time, really earned your stripes in a situation where, you know, you could have played your cards. You didn't. And I find that to be remarkably refreshing. And quite frankly, I think that's why who you are. Well, you're very kind. You're very kind. And those 2.45 a.m. wake up calls, I actually had a really great time. I went on a little bit longer than my boss at the time suggested I do that shift. So uh, I can joke about that with him now. But you've got to work hard. There's no point not. But lucky to find a job you love because then the working hard bit's not, not, so, uh, not so much of a drain. Yeah, well, I'd say this. I, you know, you, you made when you made that move to to the afternoon. That must have been really good for your sleep schedule there. It's amazing when you shift to to the best hours in in the world. How quickly your mates lose sympathy for you and get jealous straight away. I was like, dude, I did two hours of the terrible hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but you and Sarah, your co-host, you guys made that show your own. And it was a, uh, you guys had a great run. And we were very sad to see you go. You went back to the UK. Talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, we'll kind of move backwards a little bit, but you are back in town this week. My mom keeps texting me. Wilf was on the Today Show. Wilf was on MSNBC. So you're covering the Queen's Jubilee here from New York. From New York. Yeah, having only moved back to the UK two months ago to then come back here to cover the most British of events sounds a bit odd. But once they decided not to send Savannah and Hoda to cover it there, then uh, they, they brought me back out here. But yeah, after an epic seven and a bit year run at, uh, at CNBC, my wife and I just thought we wanted to be based in London and that led everything else. And I was delighted that we could put it all together where I'm at Sky, part of the Comcast family, and still a contributor for the different parts of the company out here. Well, you burned the lead a little bit there. You just said, my wife and I. I mean, <laughs> this this wife and I, I mean, that's recent. The nuptials, I mean, it's within the last, you know, like week and a half. Talk about what, I mean, talk about what's being now a husband. Less than a week. And I thought the one thing I wanted to make sure I did on my honeymoon was join the On The Tape podcast. So that's, <laughs> that's, uh, that's how we managed to schedule it. No, it feels great. I mean, listen, it's been, a long time in coming. I'm glad we delayed the wedding till when we did. I thought everything would be up and open and free to fly earlier than it was, but it only just about was, I guess. And, you know, we had 200 people or so in the English countryside last weekend, about 80 Americans, and it was just epic. Dreams come true. It was it was a really wonderful day. Well, talk about turning the page. So you had this great career here. You found the woman of your dreams here. You go back, you get married in the UK. She wants to live there. I know Kaylee. I mean, she seems very excited to be there. And so what does it feel like to kind of, are you restarting your career in a way? We're going to talk about Paradigm Productions a little bit. It seems like you've always had designs on, on, on kind of having your own media company here, but it's kind of a reorientation. You've been really focused on financial media for the last, what, 10 years or so? Yeah, exactly. Interesting. It's not really restarting my career, but weirdly, even though I'm a Brit, my first seven and a half years in TV was all A, in business, and B, largely in the States. So, uh, you know, I, I have, I'm have i pivoting in genre and obviously in the country I'm based in. And uh, the first few months of that has gone really great and loving getting stuck into the minutiae of British politics, even though everyone here thinks it looks a little bit small. And, you know, I do miss the business beat because I'm a bit of a geek at heart, as you guys all know I found myself in the MSNBC green room today flicking over to watch a bit of halftime report as Apple was down 4% and enjoying that as well. So, you know, I, but, but I thought after seven and a bit years, age 36, I love business, but I don't want to do just business. And the country move allowed a chance to pivot in genre and uh, to, to broaden horizons. I don't want to be just the business guy for the rest of my life. Folks here in the United States are fascinated by the royal family for obvious reasons. The closest thing we ever came to that, obviously, is probably the Kennedy family in the early 1960s. And to a certain extent to this day, the Kennedy family still has that mystique. But obviously, the British royal family, that's above and beyond. How important is that? I mean, we look at it through a certain lens here in the United States. I think with the advent of 24-7 media, social media, and all those things, maybe the bloom is off the rose a little bit, but can you speak to the importance of the British royal family and what you feel about it? I think the biggest thing I always mention when discussing it with Americans is that, stating the obvious, you have one single person who's both head of state and head of government. We have a separate head of government and head of state. And when Americans rally around the flag, the equivalent for us, because it's separate from government, is kind of rallying around the queen, around the crown. And so we have this national icon who, certainly throughout my lifetime, has always been a uniting figure. And 
I don't know anyone that's not remarkably proud of that and doesn't therefore, you know, you get the most divisive moment in, in political history, which for us was Brexit, but you still all want to stand together and sing God save the queen because it's this separate aspect, the separate head of state. And on one level, if you ask someone to try and justify rationally passing something on down a bloodline today, you simply can't. It's wrong. Things should be merit-based and this is not. But the offsetting factor of that, the people still want it. And of course, she has no power. If she did, then it would be a non-starter. The power resides in the democratic elected members of government. But it just kind of works for us. And I think it will keep working. I think she'll be impossible to replace individually. But the day Prince Charles becomes king, hopefully not for many years, he'll then represent that same aspect of national, the national icon. And uh, I, I think it will go on much longer than people uh, expect. I'm long the royal family, if we're talking stock. Well, it, you, you look at the pictures and the videos. I mean, it's truly magnificent. I was just over in the UK, and the excitement about and leading up to it, you know, was was pretty amazing. Yeah, the flags weren't put out for our wedding. Yeah, no, well, I was wondering. Yeah, no, it felt like a royal wedding. But, you know, here in America, you were just talking about you're a bit of a business nerd here. Our royalty it seems to be like CEOs of companies, right? Or yeah, which founders. is much cooler, because yeah. that's off their own back. No, it is, and it's really interesting. I will tell you this. So Guy and I, the other night here in New York, we interviewed David Solomon. Okay, the CEO of Goldman Sachs. And I've we heard were, of him. We were, yeah, I know. We were in the green room, <laughs> and I said, I just saw you last weekend. A huge smile went on his face. A guy, am I right about that? And he says, I love that guy, and I miss that guy. You do not hear that from bank CEOs too frequently about somebody who used to interview him, what, at least a couple times a year on air, that sort of thing, and not, not, not layups, that sort of thing. So how are you able to kind of carve out this niche with a notoriously difficult group of CEOs here in America? God, I don't know. You'd have to ask them that. I mean, it's interesting, no layups. I think he Got a bit upset with me after I pushed him pretty hard on, on the WeWork IPO. For that, the following year, I didn't get two a year. But no, I, I think that, I don't know, you'd have, you'd have to ask them. But when I also look at how dad managed to do that with lots of people, I think people respect, A, if you've done all your research and you're clearly prepped and, and you've done a lot of hard work to do it, you're not just there for the sake of it. But the most important thing which you can't fake is genuine curiosity. And I think that people just, it's like being on a, on a date with someone and having to ask scripted questions versus just free-flowing conversation. And I, I think that's what they respect. And they know you've got to ask the tough questions, but if you do it politely, you're not cr trying to create a gotcha moment, then I think, I think that works. And I loved covering the banks and mainly because of those big interviews. I thought that was really good fun and fascinating. I miss it. Yeah, and you did an amazing job with it. And you know, I'm not going to ask you who your favorite CEO is because that's not a fair question, but I'm sure there have been interviews that sort of rise above the ones that are just sort of run of the mill. I'm sure there have been a couple times you'll be like, wow, that was an amazing interview for this reason. Can you sort of think about that and, and talk about that situation? Interesting. I think the first one I did with Jamie Dimon which was maybe five or six months into my time out here, partly because no one thought I was going to get it. Uh, and now I shouldn't say that because it should never be about me. It should always be about them. But I just remember when I told the bosses that I booked it, I, I kind of was surprised, but I wasn't that surprised because I knew if I put my head down and do these things. And I think it actually really sped up, I guess, my rise here or my, not my word to use, but because he is kind of and, and always was at the time the, the king of, of finance. Uh, no, he became a made guy. I mean, like, that's it, it right? It made like, a big so, difference. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of stuff followed from it. And, and weirdly, if we think about within the content of that, and I remember thinking going into those interviews, two of the bosses I absolutely loved, Nick Diogan and Nick Dunn, saying in the prep, we, you know, I was going through the questions I wanted to talk to them about, and they were saying, We've got to make sure we hit him on this. We've got to hit him on that. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to hit him on anything. I'm going to ask about those topics, but I'm going to do it in my way. And I, I'm confident that over time, I'll get more out of him by doing it. And I, and I do think you've got to hold people to account over time. And people that try and just think, this is my one chance. I'm going to hit him, hit him, hit him. Well, you'll never interview them again. And dad's record is perhaps the best for showing that. Cumulatively, who held people to account more over their career, dad did. But you've got to get them to come back. And that's not to say you ever leave off a topic that must be asked about on that day, but but you just got to think about it a little bit more than that. That's incredible that you bring up your father. We'll obviously talk about that because I think a lot of your skill set came from him without question. But I'll say this, that's a tough 
place to find yourself in when you have the bosses, the hierarchy saying, you know, we want to hit him or her on these things. You're sort of caught in the middle. At the end of the day, you're the person conducting the interview. So I respect that a great deal because, quite frankly, some of the best conversations aren't the gotcha questions. It's the sort of deep dive questions that I think force a lot of these CEOs to think about their business. And I think you've probably found interviewing these guys and gals that they might have come away smarter from the interview the same way you might have come away smarter from the interview. I think that's absolutely right. And you don't want to always ask them as well the same topics. And I think we live in far too much of a short-term news cycle era, and therefore people always do get influenced, whether it's by their bosses or by Twitter or thinking what's going to make news on the wires, and they don't think about conversation and something that you could step back from in a year or two, and it would form a part of a definitive biopic on the individual because it's really interesting and it's about storytelling or it reflects on something that happened a long time ago. But our viewers aren't just there to see what makes a headline flash on the wires. They're interesting and interested people themselves. And and they're probably going to be interested by the same kind of stuff that you are. And and I do think that it's really important not to be pushed around. Look, we're young, we're learning. I, I always thought after an interview, I want to dissect it with my boss and learn from that. But before the interview, you've got to back yourself and believe yourself that look, I'll find this interesting and I'm going to ask it. And even if my boss might be pushing me down another avenue. You just got to kind of believe in yourself on those things. So you were, before you got into journalism, and it sounds like, and we're going to obviously talk about this, you always had an eye towards journalism. It was kind of in the blood, if you will, but you were in finance. And so I'm just curious, as you got over here and you spent some time covering finance and business here in America, what were some of your takeaways about the business, the, the way that we do business here versus the way it was done in the UK? Because it seems like, I don't know, it seems like you guys got relegated long time ago and we just kind of took over, you know, in, in, the, in the majors here? Well, the first thing I'd just quickly say, because when I got here, everyone sort of assumes that it's lazy socialist Europe versus hardworking capitalist America. I, th- I think that London is at least somewhere in between the two. Yeah. And actually, I will say as well, when you work in a markets-based job, as I did for five years before journalism, our markets in London open at 8am. You guys are slack 930 and you close by four. So that's at least one little pushback I have to put in London's corner. But look, I think bottom line is this country is a balance between capitalism and liberalism. Ours is capitalism versus socialism. And there is less of a hardcore belief that it's all about work hard, play hard. And that has kind of shaken out over the last particularly decade, but two decades. And yeah, America has left the rest of the world behind. The, the innovation has been stunning. The wealth creation because of it has been stunning. And there is something about when you're here in New York, which is what I have experience of, but obviously places like Austin and Silicon Valley as well, of just a desire to work hard and, and deliver that I don't think you find anywhere else in the world. What I will say is an offset, you, you have more wealth here than anywhere in the world, GDP per capita, GDP in total, but the inequalities frankly unacceptable when you when you put that in the same mindset. So I think both countries can can not to say that doesn't exist in the UK it does as well, but both countries can learn from each other on that. It's kind of nuts when you think of the wealth of some of those individuals and and the arguments that s- still take place about whether healthcare should be free or, or whatever. Anyway, we don't we want to keep your listeners, so I don't want to go down. No, listen, I'm glad you brought that up, Wolf, because I talk about it all the time. The wealth gap in this country has never been wider and it just continues to grow each and every day. And that, that's a problem for a myriad of different reasons that nobody seems to want to address. So I'm glad you brought it up. And I'm sure, you know, you're somebody, by the way, with. Well, by the, the way, the thing that still annoys me, people say, there's loopholes for the rich people and all that, and that gets thrown around. And you kind of never think that's really true. It's a bit of spin from the anti-business kind of lobby or whatever. In America, it's true. Mm-hmm. I mean, every time we have those debates, it used to drive me mad on CNBC. The one thing in particular, the step up in basis of capital gains is the single biggest loophole I've ever seen. And it's absurd. And even when the Democrats come in and they're passing a massive financial budget bill, it was in the bill initially, and it got lobbied out of the Democrats' bill. And you even ask Elizabeth Warren about it when she comes on and say, why isn't it still in there? And they don't have an answer. So there are actual simple low-hanging fruit fixes that could be done to start fixing it. And it doesn't seem to happen. And I never quite understand 
why that is. No, but I'll say this. I think with the platform that you've created and you will continue to create, I think you're, and I'm not just saying this to say it, I think you're somebody that can help sort of push that forward. And I, I have every confidence that you will do that. The question I wanted to ask you, because I spent some time in London as well. I used to stay at the Savoy, if you recall, that wonderful hotel. Business uh, must met, be good. Had many a dinner at the at Zeferano for you Italians that go to like to go to Italian food in Chelsea, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. But what do you find if there is a difference, the difference between bankers in the UK and bankers here in the United States? Because for me, at least in my experience, there are definitely some differences. That's really interesting. I mean, salaries are better for the Americans. <laughs> I, know, I, I, I think that in finance, it's one of the few areas where we're still pretty good, at, actually. So I'm not sure I got immediately that comes to mind any really stark differences. I, I think that it's easier to hustle here. I think this, 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 so this isn't so much an observation just about banking, but it applies there. But this country is just the most brilliant meritocracy. And if you can do well and you can hustle and work hard, you can climb fast. And maybe that then contributes to greater minds or better minds kind of being higher up and therefore things do better. There's still a few more of those barriers that you have to go through in the UK where it's like, oh, well, the grads always have to do this for three years. So you're still doing that for three years, that that sort of thing. And I think that applies across all industries as well. And in America, people can just, if, if you're brilliant, you can found a company and it can be worth billions overnight, then good for you. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So you obviously didn't go into journalism. And like we said, it's in your blood. You just referred to your dad. And let's just take a step back here. So your dad, Sir David Frost, I think in America, probably had one of the most important interviews for American political history. And probably at the time, a lot of Americans didn't know who he was. Is that fair to say in 1977? I don't think it is actually. And I think when the movie Frost Nixon came out, which was late in dad's life and in sort of 2011, I think it framed it that way yeah. because it was it was a great movie and we all we all loved it. But it, Peter Morgan, who wrote it, who also wrote The Crown, needed you know for what was a political documentary interview to make it into a Hollywood movie, needed to make it more dramatic. So they amped up the David versus Goliath aspect and made it sound as if Dad was a bit of a lightweight British chat show host. In fact, which will come to, I'm sure, revealed by doing that first season of, of the Frost Tapes podcast, he'd already interviewed Nixon twice and two prime ministers, Robert Kennedy, Governor Wallace, all sorts of major celebrities, Muhammad Ali. So in fact, he'd already won two Emmys by then uh, in the US. So, But he had a great rise in the US and then his career had plateaued and fallen in the US. So he needed something to launch him back. But, but actually, I think probably quite a lot of Americans knew who he was already. That movie's a fascinating movie. If, if you haven't seen it, you should go out to your local blockbuster this weekend, Dan, <laughs> and maybe pick it up. I know I don't have to because I actually have it on the DVD. But you know, what did you learn from your father? I want to talk about your mother as well because she's equally fascinating and impressive. But you know, in terms of the skill set that you've created for yourself, what did you learn from your dad in sort of just a journalistic silo? All of this has come in recent years because sadly, after he, he left. Because growing up, while I dreamt of being a, a journalist like dad, a broadcast journalist, an interview like dad, I also dreamt of being like a Premier League soccer player. And I used to bracket them together, i.e. it's not going to happen. Uh, and just because dad did one of them didn't mean it was any more likely. And, and that's why, you know, I went to uni, got a degree in politics and economics, went into finance, even though I didn't really dream of doing finance. So it wasn't like all my life I was growing up around him taking notes about that part of the industry. And he died before I, I actually did anything that was properly broadcast. He saw me do some stuff behind the scenes as I was kind of trying to prepare a showreel. And I, it's one of my regrets that I never sat down. Once I'd made that decision in my mind to go for it, we probably had a year's overlap trying behind the scenes before he died, that I didn't sit down and sort of ask him about the greatest interview of all time to ask him about these things because I think as a son you think oh I've got all the time in the world with dad and I kind of want to do it on my own at this stage what I've learned from him is twofold the secondary part is you know by going through his archive which I manage in recent years observing stuff but the most important thing I think was subconscious through my life and just seeing him in action both in front of the camera but behind the camera and at home and I have some similar traits I think to dad but not because of him but because of me and I think the single most important thing as I mentioned earlier is being genuinely curious and genuinely interested in the people you're talking to you can't fake that 
and being yourself. Dad, for example, wouldn't understand seeing an interviewer be confrontational for the sake of being confrontational. If there was an interviewer who happened to be like Mike Wallace or Jeremy Paxman in the UK, confrontational, he totally got it because that's just the way that person was. It wasn't how he was. And again, I, I just I think you just got to be yourself. We're, we're, we're presenters, not actors. And that's probably the most important thing. You can't fake a genuine curiosity. You've either got it or you haven't. I happen to think I do, but it's because of me, not because of him. Let's talk about the Frost tapes, because I remember you telling me when you were in the process of doing it, you had recently acquired, you and your brother, right, the, the, all of the archives, and you were just shocked by the, the, the volumes, what, t- thousands of hours of, of all oh, of the tens interviews? of thousands of interviews, yeah. Tens of thousands of interviews, stuff that you didn't even know existed. And so you decided, just give us, lay it out. I, I listened to all of this. It was released in the fall of 2020, and we'll go through some of the topics in the first season, because the it was just fascinating. There's an interview that had never been listened to with your dad and Joe Biden, okay, when he was running for president the first time in 1988, the first of his many runs. And there, this was released during his campaign that he ended up winning and listening to him then and the positions that he took and some of the problems facing America. It was just really, it was a fascinating time capsule. And there was a bunch of other really great topics. One of them was on women's libs. Another one was Panthers, Black Panthers and the police. These were all things we were dealing with in 2020. So it was so topical, but talk to us a little bit about how you decided on this format, on a podcast format, taking these, taking some of the interviews that you thought were most relevant and then kind of placing them in this sort of historical context and then adding your own sort of context on it with what was going on right now. So dad owned quite a lot of the interviews he did more than most sort of salaried presenters in in each of the five decades he, he operated for, but probably owned less than than kind of people in the industry thought. And yeah, after he died in in 2013, I kind of uh, assumed control of most of that and bought back some chunks that he didn't own, reacquired some rights. And the single biggest deal that we did was with CBS for what he did in the late 60s and early 70s in, in the US, which at the time was with Group W, which later got bought by CBS. There was lots of parts of this treasure trove, but that was the big part, which had really been overlooked by its its then owners and had just been gathering dust really in, in an archive in Pennsylvania. And as you spent more time going through this stuff, which was tens of thousands of hours, as you said, that chunk of it in particular, you just would watch and think, the number of times, particularly once I'd moved here, your jaw would hit the floor and you'd just be thinking this conversation could be happening today. And there was there was an aspect of it that was quite depressing, actually, because you kind of thought, how are we still asking the same questions? As you said, whether it's police brutality, whether it was racism, whether it was, uh, you know, women's rights. And I'd come by 2018, we'd got things enough and organized to start trying to pitch some project ideas. And I always met quite short-sighted TV commissioners and didn't get anything off the ground in 18 and 19, which I'm now thankful for. And then in 2020, even more than before, I just thought, this is the year we have to seize upon with this archive and move to do it in podcast format rather than TV, which was a great blessing. And I'm very proud of the podcast, hugely proud of it, which season one got 2.6 million listens. It has all, in fact, now led to a big TV project, which I'm also excited about. But the podcast format was amazing because it allowed us over two seasons now to do, you know, 17, 18 episodes of long form, which you wouldn't get away in TV and share more of this archive. And yeah, so so season one, the kind of hook that threaded that whole season was conversations that could have been happening today. And I learned a lot as well during that process. You know, the Nixon interviews, which felt quite Trumpian, I knew about. Biden I knew about but didn't know that this lost interview that had never aired existed until I dived into the tapes. But there was a lot of stuff that I didn't know about. The interview with Cesar Chavez, I didn't really know who who Cesar Chavez was. With Shirley Chisholm, I didn't really know who who she was. And I loved learning about them, uh, working out how we would contextualize these conversations and make them feel relevant. And yeah, I'm very proud of it. And I'm a news geek. So I think that 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 season was just really good fun to make, really fascinating. So here's a question for you. And this might be a difficult one to answer. I think your dad's been passed away nine years. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm I'm in the ballpark. Do you think you know your dad better now or when you were younger? No better now because 
what really mattered was the man he was and I always knew that and he was just the best I always say this and it surprises people because he was an even better dad than he was a broadcaster and everything he did was always shining through all of his personal qualities and stuff so it's not that I know him better less now at all but I I was already up 100% maybe I went from 98% to 99% in the last in the last 9 years but I will say that we always knew what a legend he was until he died we perhaps fractionally underestimated that when he did there was this extraordinary outpouring of love and affection and respect which was which was really kind of extraordinary to witness and then yeah go, going through all of these tapes Again, it brings that aspect home to you. You're just like, how the hell did he do it? One aspect of that is in 68 to, to 72, to 71, he was doing the David Frost show, which over three years got two Emmys, five nights a week in New York. And I've always known this aspect, which was at the same time, he'd record the Friday show on the Thursday, fly back, and he was doing Frost on Friday, Frost on Saturday, Frost on Sunday in London. And he used to be proud of the fact, which I was aware of before because he'd always said, yo, I, I invented the eight-day week during that period of time. Two factors that I've learned in recent years, which just add to how extraordinary that was. One is I've seen all the contracts and the paperwork, and his contract was for 50, 50 weeks worth a year. So he literally had two weeks off during that period of commuting between London and New York before Concord this was. And secondly, these interviews were like 90 minutes long with Huey Newton, the founder of the Black Panthers, or Shirley Chisholm or Cesar Chavez, discussing the most controversial topics of the day, race and religion, in an adopted country. And he was, and I know during this period he was burning the candle at both ends, <laughs> and the way he handled these 90-minute conversations was unbelievable. And the prep that must have gone in to be able to go off on the tangents that he did with these people I mean, that staggered me as I watched all this. I just don't know how he did it. You know, and I'd, I'd get tired prepping for a five-minute interview with Dan Nathan or Guy Adami on, on the market zone. And it, it's just staggering. I mean, what he achieved, unbelievable. Well, you mentioned we earlier, and we is really important because obviously you're your father's son, but you're also your mother's son, and she's a remarkable woman. So I want to talk about the impact that she's had And your two brothers, Miles and George, absolutely. It's important to talk about that as well. They've had a huge impact on your life. Oh, enormously. And if I say that dad was the best dad in the world, it's really that my parents were the best parents in the world. And in fact, when we talk about dad's career, the most important thing to say is that he wouldn't have had half the career he had if he didn't have mum's love and support behind the scenes throughout that period of time. And that's just his career. And then, you know, family life. We had the most extraordinary upbringing and all this great opportunity and amazing homes and stuff but my brothers and I would always say that was actually nothing compared to just their love and support and this sort of subconscious sense you had as, as kids of of knowing that that was around and, and mum was just you know amazing throughout and still has been since and she's a remarkable lady she's lost her her husband and her eldest son, my older brother, and faced and got through cancer. And she she just faced so many challenges and, and beat them all. And she's really an, an unbelievable person. And yeah, my brothers and I, again, growing up, we had these amazing things around us from, you know, Beatles or prime ministers or whoever's coming for dinner. And we didn't really care about that. All my brothers and I wanted to do was hang out with each other, play football in the back garden. And we, we were really very close in age, as if we were triplets, though we weren't. And I, I was the middle one. But yeah, we were just actually really quite a simple little family of five. And my brothers were just a trio. And I missed that balance that we had. It, it's always sad to think about it. But we're very lucky because, you know, my, my little brother and I still have each other and we still have mum. Well, I was very fortunate to be at your wedding last week. And I will say this, I think there was, what, 70 Americans there. And I got to sit next to one of your cousins at dinner. And this was a celebration of two families. And I think that you and Kaylee did that. And I think it was really nice. And I think a lot of the people who were really influential to both of you were present in that room, whether they were there or not. And it was really a nice thing. And you could tell how much both of your families have been impacted. And your mom just kind of just... I think she just enjoyed the day. She right, like Absolutely. it wasn't. She didn't really try to take you know like center stage at anything. And she looks like a remarkable woman. It was an amazing thing. So, congrats to you guys. One of the things that you just mentioned, the Beatles or this or that, or whatever. So, 
Season two of the Frost Tapes, which is coming out this week or On Monday. Monday. All right. So I got, you gave us a little bit of a preview. I listened to the first episode. It's with your dad and Elton John, but it's not just one interview. It's over the course of, I think, a few decades, they right? Did of 10, interview. 10 interviews, yeah, from 69 to 2002. 12, I think, was their last. 2005 was their last one. It, it was really interesting listening to it and listening to all these bits. And, and I think the episodes, uh, you know, probably has at least like a half an hour, right, of, of or, or more of this conversations over the course of these decades. And people, celebrities just don't do interviews like that anymore. And, and his comfort with your dad and just is, is raw and honest about his drug addiction, his sexuality, his depression, you know, coming up with fame and all that sort of, it was just fast. Talk to me a little bit about the pivot now, because you're going to do, this is going to be on entertainment. Yes. Yeah, so, so see, I think one of the guiding principles of dad as an interviewer generally was that the interview has to be about the guest. It's not about him. And so I, I had that as a guiding principle of, of pulling all this stuff together. And for season one, it was really about things that could have been happening today. And then season two is about these entertainers. And in particular, nine episodes coming, we focused on the entertainers, not just the most famous names he interviewed, but those he interviewed many times across decades, because it allows us to tell their life story in their own words, just words that all happened to be said to one man to dad but again i think it's not about shoving dad down the listeners throats it's it's we can tell elton john's life story via his his interviews with dad and you you say that these conversations these types of interviews don't happen anymore and i agree with that but actually it's it's more than that even back then they only happened with dad because all of our guests from elton john andrew lloyd webber the beatles michael kane etc etc they were dad's friend they opened up to him. There's a sort of confessional booth quality to these interviews where dad just got more out of them than anybody else did. And he interviewed them so many times. And yeah, and, and with Elton, you know, the other point is he got more out of them, but at the crucial point in their lives. If Elton, even to his best friend today, gives an interview about his addiction, his mental health problems and overcoming it, it won't be as real as the fact that in 1978, he talked to dad about trying to commit suicide twice before he'd got over his addictions. And in 1991, the only interview he gave as he came out of rehab after 15 months of rehab to, to get over it all was to dad and to talk openly about that process. You're never going to get a, as raw a capture of those moments ever again. And I think that, yeah, again, I just couldn't believe it. I, again, Elton interviews, Ali interviews, I'd kind of seen those before, but I hadn't watched all of them. I hadn't recovered the tapes, hadn't gone through them. You know, again, there's material in there that's never been aired, but lots that has basically been lost for a generation. And I think even though they're old conversations, I think we'll make some headlines because they feel fresh. They feel like they've never been said before because they're kind of so sho so shocking when you hear them. Well, you said natural curiosity, and I'm always curious. So you mentioned Michael Caine. So I'll mention Michael Caine. Now, I know you saw this movie. It probably made you wince when you saw it, although it happens to be one of my favorite movies. But Michael Caine played a British prisoner of war in a German camp that put together a proper football team against the Germans. <laughs> Name of the movie was Victory. And it was, I love the movie because Sylvester Stallone's in it. They actually yeah, had yeah. some real Pele. footballers yeah, as well. That, yeah. Who is the one guy that you never got the opportunity to meet? Like, you know, in terms of British royalty in the football spectrum, who are you like dying to meet? I'm sure you met Alan Shearer and all those people. Who's the one guy you haven't met yet? So, so this is as in still living? No, still living for sure. I mean, I was very lucky growing up because... My little brother's godfather uh, is David Seaman, who is like an Arsenal legend. So we got to go to a lot of the games with him and meet the players afterwards. My favorite player, probably, I mean, I'd love, I'd love to meet our current crop of great players. Bakaya Saka, for example, would be great to meet. But wow, I'm so lucky. I probably met some of the great. I met Thierry Henry only very briefly, so maybe a proper, a proper meeting with him. He is epic. But I was lucky enough to meet. I mean, the other real legends of my youth growing up for Arsenal, Tony Adams, David Seaman, Patrick Vieira, Dennis Bergkamp, I have, they won't remember me, but I've had proper conversations with all of them. And that is, I mean, as a massive fanboy, that is pretty fucking fortunate. 
I, I guarantee they remember you, number one. And you mentioned your brother's godfather. Your godfather, unless I'm completely off my rocker, is John Cleese, which is just so ridiculous, but you have to talk about that. Yeah, and, and what, again, is remarkable about Dad is the early part of his career, he was doing so many things. He wasn't, in his tw- early 20s, he wasn't just already very famous in front of the camera in the UK because of a show called That Was The Week That Was, but he was already producing. And uh, that involved with some of the early British comedians that went on to things like Monty Python, helping them get their first gigs. And whether it's John Cleese or uh, other British comedians that are less well-known in the US like Ronnie Corbett, all of them, when you read their autobiographies or look back at their interviews, say you know they wouldn't have had the career they had if not for the, the the help, the start that David Frost gave them. And yeah, Dad and he were super super close. And uh, yeah, so John is John is my godfather, and Ronnie Corbett, as it happens, is. Uh, for British listeners, was is is my brother's. Yeah, but it must make you feel great that American audiences look at a guy like John Cleese and they know he's a legend. I mean, he really is a legend. Well, the Pythons have an extraordinary, enduring, global yeah. uh, recognition. I actually think his best stuff was Faulty Towers, which people here don't know as well. I mean, and and the Python stuff is quite generational yeah. as well. Like younger people don't don't know it so much but yeah i i guess uh, american audiences last saw uh john cleese in uh in the the bond movies uh and just by, Q, yeah, yeah but by the way you know guy i don't know if this comes to your mind but every time i see wilf i have this thing it plays in my head it's like did he move back there's a couple reasons why i think he moved back one i think that there's this james bond opening so maybe that's part of the thing he probably felt like he had to live on the island that would be one and the other one would be you got to figure out how to rehabilitate your your arsenal squad here because number five they weren't number five when you left for america maybe oh no we were already crap by then oh really yeah yeah, we had but but we in my my teenage years were amazing yeah the last decade and a half is not great okay terrible well hopefully you'll see a little bit of a star turn. I will say this, that I was in a pub in Tribeca. It was uh, this past summer. It must have been late July. It was the Euro 2020 finals. And it went to penalty kicks. Guy, I know you were up early. You were watching it. And I was watching during the penalty kicks in the finals. Okay. I was watching Will's face. Okay. At this last kiss. And I saw a gentleman. I just saw this, like, just everything got drained out of you when, when Italy made that last kick there. What does your football fandom mean to you? And are you psyched to go back there? And will you be at every home game for Arsenal? Football was everything to my brothers and I growing up. I love all sports, but football for my brothers and I outweighed everything else. We would always just wear our Arsenal jerseys or England jerseys basically constantly unless someone important was coming to the house and we were made to put on normal clothes. And all we'd want to do is is get dad home from work and, and he made a you know make it two on two in the garden. It'd be my little brother and him. Dad was pretty good. He actually was offered professional terms at a soccer club called Nottingham Forest as a a 19-year-old. And we would just spend hours and hours doing it. So it's great to be back. Amazingly, I got back when the season was still going and I didn't get to a game. It's been such a wildly busy couple of months, but I will be definitely going often. We have three season tickets between five or six of us with some cousins. Um, And... I don't know. I hope we get back to the sort of towards the top where we need to be because it is heartbreaking, not just not doing well, but we've been so far off the pace that you get to halfway point of the season and you've already got nothing to fight for. It's a different setup, of course, to here because here you can be having an average season, but as long as you make the playoffs, there's still something to fight for. It kind of makes the second half of the season less exciting and it's quite quite annoying that as a fan. 1997, I went to London. On a Sunday, I went to see a Charity Shields match between Newcastle and Manchester United at Wembley. Eric Cantona, Alan Shearer, (laughs) and a young David Beckham were on the pitch that day. That's my claim to fame. That's a great great set of players those teams had back then. Unbelievable. But just let me tell you what kind of guy Wilford is. So the Italians played England in some sort of cup. Was it the World Cup? I don't Euro, know. Euro, Euro 2020. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dan just and, explained what it was. Jeez, he wasn't guy. listening. I, I, I listen. I mean, th- there's so many cups over there. Like different countries play different teams. And the whole thing's extraordinarily confusing. But I'll say this. 
England scored the first goal early on in that game, and I guarantee you were doing like the dance. But you had made a bet with me that, you know, the British were going to beat the Italians. The Italians stormed back. I think they won 2-1. But the next, literally the next day, this incredible bottle of wine showed up at my door. And that's just the type of guy you are. You're a stand-up guy. You're an amazing individual. Before we get out of here, Wilf, talk about the Frost Tapes Season 2. So, yeah, drops on Monday. It is nine episodes, which are all individual biopics on one of the biggest entertainers of the last 50 years, telling their life stories in their own words, all words that just happened to be said to one man, to David Frost, from the Beatles, Muhammad Ali, Sammy Davis Jr., Jane Fonda, Lauren Bacall. I'm going to forget one now. I shouldn't have started doing this list. Andrew Lloyd Webber, Elton John, Elizabeth Taylor, and Michael Caine. That's nine, I think. Pretty, pretty epic cast of people. And yeah, I can't wait to share it, actually, because... Is this one I, I've been making over about a year. We didn't have quite such a tight schedule as we did last time because the election was coming. And so I've just been dying to share it with everyone. And I, the fun thing as well has been sharing it with these individuals if they're still around. And I think all of them love it uh, and have been reminded of how open they were with dad. And if you can shock Elton, Andrew, Michael, and Paul about things that they once said, I think we're going to shock the fans too. Just so you know, guy, that's Paul Paul McCartney. This is the this is what from, no, it's not Paul McCartney. It's Sir, Sir Paul. Paul. I McCartney, mean, the fact that Wilfred can actually speak to them on, on a first name basis is pretty fascinating. Listen, I got to listen to the Elton John one; it was absolutely amazing. I can't wait to listen to the rest of them. And I will tell any of our listeners if you're interested in just politics and some of the issues that we talked about. I mean, they're all really relevant. They were relevant the season one when they dropped. They're just as relevant now. And like I use the expression, it is a time capsule going back. And I didn't even mention that you spent a lot of time throughout that whole first season um, from the Frost-Nixon thing kind of intertwined through that. And that is fascinating. And I did not do your dad justice when I asked you that question because the Ron Howard movie is amazing and it's fun, but there's a lot more to it. And uh, so I I got to learn a lot about that. So um, can't wait for season two to come out next week. Wilfred, thank you for joining Guy and me. We hope you will come back when you are back in the States. I would love to, guys. Honestly, a real a real real pleasure to join you both thank you take your wife on a proper honeymoon will you please i mean this (laughs) ain't it love you will we've got that coming in september we always knew the dates would fall like this and the reason of course i'm out here is to do this podcast but uh (laughs) on top of that i managed to fit in some jubilee coverage for the today show thanks will thanks will Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.